Well, I will never forget on uh, Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday of October when we take time to celebrate the Protestant Reformation, the way God lined up our sermon text so that it was so neatly fit the theme. We were preaching through 2 Timothy, and 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 is one of the most important texts as it relates to the Reformation, and it just so happened. I did no manipulation. I just preached exactly what I was planning on preaching, and it just so happened that it fell right on Reformation Sunday. It was really quite moving, and God almost did that same thing for us this time around, although not quite, as this would have been a great sermon to preach on Father's Day a couple weeks ago, uh, but the Lord's timing is best And so we will trust him with that. But today we are going to explore what I said earlier is this theme of adoption. This biblical truth, a biblical doctrine, if you will, the doctrine of adoption whereby we have become the people of God. And you really could make an argument that the entire book of Galatians is ultimately about this theme of adoption. We've seen Paul sort of shift back and forth effortlessly between doctrines which are very similar but slightly different. He's gone from the issue of justification by faith, and then he's talked about receiving the Spirit by faith, and then he's talked about today being adopted by faith. He's talked about many things that are all accomplished by faith, and so they're all sort of pointing to this one picture, this idea of being made right and being found in right standing in the family of God. And he's going to talk today about adoption, being made God's children. Now, before we actually break into the text, I want to just do a very brief, and I promise it will be brief, uh, review of where we are at and where, what Paul has said coming up to this. Because last week we spent so much of the text making a very unique cultural application, I think we've somewhat maybe are in danger of losing sight of Paul's overall argument. So if you would just read with me just briefly from 23 through 29, I want to catch our minds up to the flow of Paul's thought before we get into chapter 4. So chapter 3 of the book of Galatians, beginning in verse 23... We will do just a very rapid-fire summary after we read this. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, two weeks, the last two weeks, we've preached through this portion of the text. And we've seen these important principles. Paul, remember, he talked about, started off with the purpose of the law. The law is our guardian and our tutor. So the law enslaves us in our sin. It reveals our sin to us. And it actually leads us to Christ. It pushes us to Christ. It teaches us about Christ. So he talked about the purpose of the law. And he was emphasizing this point that law-keeping is not the means by which we are made right with God. Law-keeping is not how we get into the family of God. And more importantly, it's never been that way. I was actually, I read a book at the beginning of the year where the author made the claim in the book. He said something like, we have all been taught that the Old Testament was one way of salvation and the New Testament is a new way of salvation. And although that's true, I want us to see a bigger picture here. And I remember writing in the notes, that is absolutely not true. 
that could not be further from the truth. This is Paul's whole point. There are not two ways of salvation. The purpose, in other words, it was not as if God said, here's a law, be saved by it. And then we failed it and he said, okay, we'll do faith instead. The law's purpose was never to save. It was never its purpose. It's always been by faith. That was his point. He talked about the purpose of the law. And then he talked about the consequences of this faith. That now that we have been freed from the guardian, the tutor, the schoolmaster of the law by faith, by Christ, we are now by our faith, verse 25, forgive me, verse 26, sons of God. Through faith, you are a daughter of God. Through faith, you are a son of God. And then he continues that this faith we have in Christ that makes us children of God brings us into such an intimate union that we are baptized into Christ, that we put on Christ. We literally wear him. Our union with him is so close. And so because of this amazing union with Christ, because of our faith which has adopted us into the family of God, apart from the law, he concludes in verse 29 that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what we see is that you really could think, although they would probably slice it up a little bit, you really can think of being a descendant of Abraham and being a child of God as essentially being the same thing. That's not because they think Abraham is God. But they understand the covenantal relationship that God made with Abraham, that it was impossible to be in God's family without also being in Abraham's family. So Paul ends this argument by saying that if you truly want to be part of the family of God, if you truly want to be one of Abraham's descendants, because in the Jewish mindset, that was who defined the people of God was the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was the family of God, those descendants. And so Paul says, no, 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 the way you become one of those descendants is not through bloodline, but through faith. You become part of the family of God, part of Abraham's offspring by faith. And then when you become part of the family of God, as what happens with any other adoption, you now own what your family owns. Your father has much to give you. You have an inheritance to be received. And so Paul is going to elaborate really on verse 29 now, this, this idea of going, moving, transitioning from a state before Christ to a state after Christ where we are now heirs of the promises that the Jews thought they were entitled to. So in, in other words, Paul's going to talk more about this concept of becoming an heir, but before you become an heir, you have to become a son. You have to be a daughter, you have to be a child before you can be an heir. And that's the concept he's going to explain. So if we, you would, follow along with me in, Romans, or forgive me, in Galatians chapter 4. And we will read through verse 7 together. These are the very words of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son and if a son, then an heir through God. 
Paul begins by really doing something which I think in our cultural context we don't see how offensive it is, but Paul really begins by doing something quite offensive. Not intentionally offensive, he's not being rude, but this would simply offend the status quo of the day. Paul knows the Jewish thought. The Jewish thought, which is, it is my lineage that makes me part of the people of God, and because I'm part of the people of God, because I'm a son of God, I must be an heir of all the promises that God has given to his people. So by merely being Jewish, I am an heir, and, and God owes me these promises, because I'm his son, I'm his daughter, he owes me these promises, I'm an heir. And this is why the the Gentile Galatians who were coming to faith in Christ, the whole controversy of the book of, of Galatians was this understanding that you can't be a son or daughter of God unless you're Jewish. Because it's the Jewish people that were made the people of God. It was the Jewish people that were given all these promises. So in order for the Gentiles to be of the people of God, you need to become Jewish. And so that's why they were forcing him to be circumcised. And I won't make the argument here, but I think we will see throughout the book of Galatians that, that being circumcised was more than just fulfilling one act of the law. That was sort of your pledge to fulfill all of it. When you got circumcised, that was essentially you saying, I will adhere to the Jewish religion. It, we, by the way, we do this when we uh, baptize adults, regardless of what your view of baptisms are. Most people, when you're baptizing an adult believer, you recognize that when you get baptized, you are sort of pledging to everyone here that I'm going to walk with Christ for the rest of my life. In many, in many baptism formulas, they actually will make people say that. Your baptism is sort of representative of your entire new relationship. It's, I will follow Christ from here on out. Circumcision was like that, right? It was a pledge. It was, I belong to this people group, and I'm going to obey their customs. So there was this pressure on the, on the Gentiles to become Jews, to be circumcised and to obey the Jewish rituals in order to truly be counted as the people of God. And that's the thought the whole book of Galatians is seeking to dissuade us of. That is not the case. And so what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 4 is he sort of condescendingly takes this concept of being a Jewish heir and compares it to, yeah, okay, fine, you can call yourselves an heir, but you're kind of like an heir when he's still a minor, when he's still a child. And here's why that's so offensive. Because what does he say in verse 1? I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is what? He's no different than a slave. Even though he owns everything, he's no different than a slave. Have you ever thought about this? If, if you're a parent in here, I'm sure you have. I'm sure it actually delights you to think about this. Your children are basically your slaves. And when I say basically, I mean they are your slaves. We don't like to think of it that way because slave has become such a bad word in our culture. But, I mean, think about it. You have a legitimate authority and ownership over your children. What happened what is, in cultures that have had slaves, if a slave runs away, what happens? And they catch him. They return him. Why? Because he belongs to this person. What happens when your children run away? Do they say, well, you're your own person. You make your own decisions. No, they return them because you own them. <laughs> There's this sense of authority, a legitimate authority you have over your children. Likewise, there's this mandatory obedience. This is why you'll often hear parents, that old thing, you see it in the movies, you hear it in real life, it's so common. Parent tells the child what to do. The child says why, and what does the parent say? Because I said so. 
Now we can debate till the cows come home about whether that's an appropriate response or not, but it's all coming from the same place. I don't have to have good reasons. You must obey just because of our relationship. Slaves obey your masters, children obey your parents. Paul connects these two when he talks about these family dynamics. There's this sense of ownership and sense of obedience. And so what Paul is sort of jokingly doing is he's saying, at the end of the day, what's really the difference between a child heir and a child slave? I mean, we don't want to take the analogy too far. There's obviously, you know, a difference whenever the time comes. One will remain a slave and one won't. But in that time period, if you're an heir but you're a child, you're really no different than a slave. You're just a slave. I don't care if you're the heir. You don't own it yet. You're a child and you're under guardians. You're under tutors. And so Paul, what he's done in verses 1 and 2... Verse 2, but he is under a guardian and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul has sort of equalized the Jewish Gentile experience prior to the coming of Christ, prior to our faith in Christ. It was easy for the Jews to think of sort of metaphorically as, as Gentiles as slaves. That's easy. They're slaves, we're the heirs. They're the slaves, we're the children. And Paul says, well, you're all basically slaves. You're, you're all basically saying there's really no difference between you two. Before Christ, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, if you're outside of Christ, before the coming of Christ, you're a slave. There really isn't much of a difference. And Paul says, here's where the difference matters. The, the heir has to eventually reach some important point in his life. And that point, Paul is now actually drawing more from the Roman understanding of of an heir, less than the Jewish understanding here, where the Romans, it was common for a rich man who who had slaves, but also had descendants, had an oldest son, he would actually make a will, and he would set a date for his son, when my son is old enough, to inherit some of my will. The father would determine that. He was usually anywhere from ages, you know, 18 to 25, So the father determines, at this point, I'm going to do something, and this slave will truly become the heir. And so what Paul is doing is he's making that as kind of a a rough analogy for our spiritual condition. That we were slaves, but at some point in time, God the Father says, I'm going to do something, and at this moment, and then those slaves will be children. They will be true heirs. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's the same word he used earlier. Well, it's actually a different word, but the same concept he used earlier in chapter 3. He talked about the law being our guardian, our tutelage, our schoolmaster. Again, the point is, is the law and sin enslaves everyone before Christ. You are a slave. Outside of Christ, you're a slave. You're a child. So how do we grow up? How do we transition from slave to son? How do we receive the inheritance that we so desperately want? What has to take place? Well, look at verse... Well, actually, I, 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 let me take a step back. I want to make a broader point here. In verse 3, Paul says this. Forgive me. I got ahead of myself. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the overall point we've kind of stated, he's pushing this point that we were all child slaves. But, but it's interesting, he says that what were we enslaved to? 
And, and I need to make this point because, uh, believe it or not, commentators are all over the place on Galatians chapter 4. And my interpretation is pretty much in line, but it's, it is very different. But this is the reason why I interpret the way I do. Because Paul says, in, until when we were children, we were enslaved. Now, what were we enslaved to? Well, the ESV renders it the elementary principles of the world. Your translations might say something a little bit different. And here's why this is difficult. The word used for elementary principles in the ESV, that's two words in English, but it's one word in Greek. Stoichia, if you're interested. And here's what's difficult. This is actually a rel relatively common word in the New Testament, but it has such a basic, wide range of meanings that even in context, sometimes it's, it's somewhat difficult to know what it means. So let me just give you its basic definition, and then we'll work towards understanding why Paul would say this. Uh, the word elementary principles here can, can oftentimes be understood as the basics of something. Just the basic principles of a religion, for example. In other words, you, uh, you will actually find some English translations out there that will put in the words, we were enslaved to the ABCs. Because that, that is the concept, right? When we talk about learn your ABCs, what are we saying? Those are the very basics of the English language. You can't move on until you get your ABCs. And now we use that metaphorically just to talk about the basics of anything, right? Like you might take, tell someone, let me teach you the ABCs of being an auto mechanic. Let me teach you the ABCs of Christian religion. ABCs has come, become like a, you know, a phrase to represent the basic rudimentary principles. And oftentimes, specifically of a religion. And I would argue that the Bible does use this word in that sense. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the author says, he, he actually chastises the Hebrew people. And he says, because you are still learning, you're still stuck on the elementary principles. And you have not yet grown to learn more about the oracles of Christ. And then he goes on to compare them as nursing infants who are still drinking milk when you should be old enough to eat solid foods right now. So elementary principles, it, it, it could be referring to the basics of the faith, which in the Old Testament would have been the law, right? Again, the Old Testament is our foreshadowing Christ. The whole purpose of the Old Testament is to sort of give us a very basic first principle understanding of Christianity. And so it would generally fit this, con this, this context, but I'm going to tell you why I don't think that's what he's saying in a minute. The other understanding of basic principles is it could literally be referring to the basic principles of the material realm of earth. Earth, fire, wind, and water. That's why uh, in, in both of Peter's epistles, he talks about the second coming of Christ. He will burn up. When Christ comes, God will burn up and recreate the elementary principles. He's talking about actually recreating the physical earth. And I think most people would agree that that's probably not what's being talked about here. Um, although it was not uncommon for Jewish people during times of apostasy to fall into pagan religions and actually start worshiping the elements of the earth. I think generally speaking, it's probably not true to say that the Jewish people, along with the Gentiles, were worshiping sun gods, worshiping the water gods. So I don't think either of these two definitions is what Paul means. Here's what I think he means. The last way that this word is used is sometimes it's used to describe pagan, unbelieving thought, unbelieving religion. In the book of Colossians, Paul tells Christians not to be persuaded by the elementary principles of the world, and then he goes on to define those as human tradition and human philosophy. 
And that's what I think Paul is saying here. And the reason, the reason I say it, because he qualifies. He doesn't just tell them that they were enslaved to the elementary principles. What does he tell them they were enslaved to? The elementary principles of the world. They weren't enslaved to the elementary principles of the law. They weren't enslaved to the elementary principles, as Hebrews says, of the oracles of Christ. So I don't think that he's saying that they were enslaved to the law in this text. I think he's saying you were enslaved to false religion. And the reason I think Paul is doing this is, number one, this would certainly offend the Jews. Because he's essentially just called them pagans. The Jewish people who have considered we're the people of God, we believe in Torah, we follow God's law, we have his scriptures, we know God, the rest of the world are those pagan unbelievers. And Paul says, before Christ came, all of you Judaizers, you were enslaved to the same false religion as them. You're pagans. And I think Paul is doing that because he wants to equalize us right now. He wants to speak in such a way that doesn't just rebuke the Jewish mindset, but it includes the Jews and the Gentiles together. And that's who I think the we is in this text. When he says in verse 3, we were children, we were enslaved. Who's the we? I think he's not just talking about Jews. He's talking about everyone. We were all slaves to false religion. And so, in other words, here's how you can think about it. You can take the Old Testament, but if you don't interpret it rightly, if you interpret it in an unchristian, anti-Christ way, then that is no better than the pagan religions that worship the sun or Islam or Mormon, whatever you want to make it. Just because you claim to love the Old Testament doesn't make you not a pagan. If you're outside of Christ, you're a pagan. If you're outside of Christ, what you believe is false religion. If you reject Christ, what you believe is false religion, and I don't care the form it takes. I don't care if it's Islamic false religion or Mormon false religion or Jewish false religion. Outside of Christ, we were enslaved to false religion. We were enslaved to the thoughts of men, not the thoughts of God. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, not the revelation of God. So Paul brings all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, into the same boat. We were slaves to false religion condemned by the law of God. By the way, I, I think we'll see this next week. Again, he's going to use the same term, but we press on. The point is, is verses 1 through 3 are really describing our enslaved condition before the coming of Christ. But then the Father did something. The will that he wrote in eternity finally came to pass. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. This is Paul reminding us of God's great sovereignty. That, that when Jesus came, it was exactly according to plan. This was what God had determined all along. The fullness, everything, all of human history was leading towards this point. So sometimes I hear, sometimes like in apologetics, we'll talk about the coming of Christ in ways that are true, but I'm, I'm fearful that they make us think backward. And let me be specific what I mean by that. You'll read all these really awesome books, and I, this is good information. I'm not saying not to know this stuff. That talk about how when Jesus showed up, it was the perfect time for him to come. 
Just given the cultural settings of the world, it was the perfect time. Because you'll hear non-Christians say things like, well, why didn't Jesus show up today when we have cameras and we have video evidence and we could have video recorded his resurrection? And then more people, why did Jesus show up when the world was mostly illiterate? And, you know, then they go on and on and on. So people will try to combat that by talking about how the circumstances of the first century were so perfect for Christ to come. And I don't necessarily deny that, but sometimes I've worried that we've got the cart before the horse. In other words, God the Father did not observe the landscape and then react. You know, God the Father wasn't like, when is it going to be? When's it going to? No, not now. Not, that was a bad time. No, still not. About, oh, look at this. Look at this. I got it. Okay, Jesus, go, go, go. This was his plan. The time was right not because the world had determined it. The world was right because God had determined it. God set the scenario. He wasn't reacting to the scenario. This was the fullness of time. God's will was finally being enacted. This is God the Father's sovereignty over human history. Jesus came when the fullness of time met. God has been telling this story and he's been shaping and creating this story and we finally got to the climax. And so what did he do? This is the gospel. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The beginning of the gospel is this, God sending the son. This is important. Just, just that little phrase, it's not even a complete sentence, that phrase says so much. It says so much. Number one, it tells us that there is some kind of distinction between God and the Son. Right? So we can't be what's the, the, the Trinitarian heresy known as modalism, which is that God is not just one being, but he's also one person. But sometimes that person will take on a different persona. So sometimes God is Jesus, sometimes God is the Father, sometimes God is the Spirit, but there's not three interactive persons. That's a heresy. It's wrong, and here's one of the many, many, many reasons we know why. The text doesn't say, but God sent himself. The text doesn't say, well, God turned into Jesus and then he went. God sent his Son. Jesus was interacting with God, and when was this interaction taking place? Before his incarnation. How can God send the Son if the coming of the Son was when He was created? There's another Trinitarian heresy known as adoptionism, which teaches that Jesus was created at Bethlehem and then became God during His ministry. But Jesus was not created at Bethlehem. His human body was, we'll get to that in a minute, but the person of Jesus was not, did not come into existence at Bethlehem because He pre-existed Bethlehem and was sent into it. So what we have here is this amazing admission from Paul that Jesus was in the beginning with God and he was God. And then the word became flesh. God sent forth his son. Paul reminds us that the gospel begins with understanding that Jesus is the son of God who was sent into the world. But how was he sent? Did he rain down from heaven with a glow? Did he come with lightning and thunder, killing and judging and slashing with a giant sword? Did he just appear in people's presence? No, the Son of God was what? Born of a woman. 
So even though Jesus pre-existed Bethlehem and he was the son of God there, he then was born of a woman. So what does that make him truly human? This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, the incarnation. More specifically, remember this word that we talked about at Christmas, the hypostatic union. The son of God becoming the son of man. That's why Jesus is both, and that's why they're both divine titles. Daniel prophesies the coming of the Son of Man, and all the Jews understood that to be a divine title. The unique Son of Man. Jesus is Son of God and Son of Man. The gospel begins with Jesus, and it begins with understanding that He is fully God and fully man, and He came into the world because the Father sent Him. He was born of the woman, fully man, fully God. Now, why did He come into the world? to be born under the law. Now that's an interesting tidbit that he just threw into the gospel. Why was he born under the law? Well, this is an important teaching point for us that I want us to spend just a little bit of time with. This is what theologians have referred to in church history as the active and passive obedience of Christ. The active and and the passive obedience of Christ. Now, there are Christian traditions today that deny these categories, and uh, they do make some fairly compelling arguments, but I stand with R.C. Sproul, uh, who, quote, is very troubled by those who deny the active and passive disobedience of Christ. When we talk about Jesus' mission, his life, we want to break up his redemption into two parts, his active obedience and his passive obedience. His passive obedience is kind of the, the climax, that's what we all think of, and that's the death of Jesus on the cross. And we call that his passive obedience. It was an act of obedience. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He, he, he prayed, God, take this cup. If there's another way, I want the other way. He didn't want it, but he obeyed. God said, no, this is how it will be done. So it was an act of obedience, but it was passive obedience. In other words, I don't mean to be weird, but Jesus didn't nail himself to the cross. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was condemned. He was crucified. But what did he tell people? If I wanted to, I could have a legion of angels come and wipe you all out right now. So it was him. He still accepted this. He still laid down his own life, but he passively accepted the cross. It was done to him. It was not something he did necessarily. It was something that he accomplished by being done to him. He passively received it. And so we have to understand that we are saved by the passive obedience of Christ. We are saved because he accepted the cross being done to him. But this concept of being born under the law, what it does is it reminds us that we are also saved by the active obedience of Christ. In other words, let me put it to you this way. If Jesus were to have just floated down from heaven and then gotten crucified and then floated back up, I don't believe that we would be saved. Because we were enslaved to the law. And Jesus, before he was able to die and free us from the curse of the law, he had to be born under the law and he had to actually fulfill it. Jesus had to actually live in obedience to the law before he could release you from the law that you failed to obey. The law condemned you and Jesus had to first be born under it. So he was born under it just like every other person after Adam. Jesus was born under the law and he was required to obey that law. And guess what he did? He obeyed it perfectly. Never an impure motive, never an impure thought, never a sinful action. He never transgressed. He obeyed the law perfectly. That was our standard. 
And we failed. But he was born under the law to live that life, and that's the righteousness that he offers us. He offers us a law-keeping righteousness. I was born under the law that condemned you so that I could, as he tells people at his baptism, fulfill all righteousness, obey the law that was given, and now I have a completed law to impute to you. So in other words, I want you to start thinking of the redemption of Christ this way. Jesus did not just die for you. He lived for you. He did not just die for you. He lived for you. You are not just saved by his death. You are saved by his life. He came to live the life that you and I have failed to live. And he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took both sides of the equation. He gives us life and he pays our death. The gospel is that the Son of God became the Son of Man and actively and passively, verse 5, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what all of this is leading to. The gospel is the climax of all of human history. The gospel is what connects both sides of human history together. Before the gospel, we were slaves and condemned. And now that the gospel has come, we are children and we are heirs. So in other words, according to Paul, what is it that needed to happen before you to become a son? Just be born to a Jewish family? Is that enough? You're just born? Oh, I can trace my ancestry all the way back to Isaac. So I'm part of the people of God, right? No, you had to be redeemed from the law before you can be adopted. So that means if you haven't been redeemed, you can't be adopted. So what does that mean? Until you're redeemed, you are not part of the people of God. You want to know what the Galatians were doing? Or forgive me, not the Galatians, the Judaizers who were, who were confusing the Galatians. You know what they were doing? They were making orphans out of all of us. False gospels make us orphans because they strip us from the one and only exclusive path we have to be adopted into the family of God. They take that away. Outside of Christ, you're an orphan with no home. But because of the gospel, you can be adopted. He sent his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The gospel is your doorway into the family of God. Without the gospel, you are not a child of God. We hear this in the secular world all the time. And it's usually, it's, it's used in a cover for us to stop talking about sin so much. right? Don't call it that person's sin. He's a child of God. God loves him. You know what 1 John says? If you're not in Christ, you know what he says? You're a child of who? The devil. God is not your father outside of Christ. Uh, the, Paul uses that phrase in Acts 17. There is, there is another way of understanding the children analogy. We are all children of God in the sense that we're all created by God. Paul would be comfortable saying that. We're all God's children. If what you mean is he made us and he owns us, then in that case, yeah, we're all the children of God. But in this kind of case that God has this loving relationship with us, that he accepts us, no, he's not your dad. Not until you've been redeemed. Jesus came to make your adoption possible. He 
He came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So you see the point Paul's getting at. What does circumcision do for you? Does that make you part of the family of God? Does circumcision have that kind of power? I'm circumcised, now I belong to God. No, 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 no. It costs so much more than that. It cost Jesus his life and his death. We were bought with a price. And so what is the result of our being adopted in Christ? Verse 6. The spirit of his son has been sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Let me first remind us of the beautiful Trinitarian nature of our adoption. Do you see the Trinity in all of this? God the Father sends the son who redeems us. And then the Spirit is sent to testify and assure us of our adoption. You see the way they're working together? We have this beautiful Trinitarian adoption. And the Spirit's role is He's sent into our hearts because we are sons. And then it's interesting, it says this, that God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's, it's like the Spirit is crying this for us, is what the text is indicating. And this is amazing because you'll see the Spirit in our lives sort of serves the same function in both directions. The book of Ephesians talks about how the Spirit is a testimony from God, almost to Himself, if you will, that we are part of the family of God. The book of Ephesians refers to the Spirit as our seal and our guarantee of our inheritance. So the Spirit, the reception of the Spirit is God's way of saying, stamped, approved, this one's mine. This one belongs to me. This one is the heir. This one will receive the inheritance. This one is mine. But in this text, the Spirit's almost working the other way. It's almost working to us. The Spirit is not just God's seal, but He's our assurance. He is the one who gives us these words, Abba, Father. He is the one in our hearts crying this out. It is Him who gets us to recognize and to see that God is my dad. He has brought that about in my life. It is the Spirit who within us cries out, I'm adopted. I have a family. Now it's interesting, why are we crying out, Abba, Father? We recited that. We say that a lot. When's the last time you've actually referred to God as Abba? What's interesting is that Abba is the Aramaic word. It's what we call a transliteration. What that means is that although it's been tweaked a little bit, that we didn't translate the word. That, that is the Aramaic word for father. The word father right next to it, that's a translation. Paul didn't write father. He wrote a Greek word, and we translate it into father. But Paul actually wrote in Aramaic, Abba, and we have continued that tradition. This is the Aramaic word. So basically, the spirit is within us so that we can call God father, and we can also speak Aramaic. Why would he do that? He does this in the book of Romans, chapter 8, too. Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. Why do you do that? There's three different reasons why people think. I'll tell you my preferred one, but they're all good, and they are all probably have some legitimacy. The first one was, uh, there, I've seen uh, Calvin made this one popular, was that Paul did this to remind us that God is not just adopting one people group. He's adopting men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation so that we all say something different, but we're all identifying the same father. Abba, father. What other Spanish word for, what's the Spanish word for father? Dia? Padre. 
We're all saying the same word, or different words, but the same concept. That, that's one understanding. This just reminds us that God did not just come for Jews. He didn't just come for Greeks. He came for, for everyone. The most popular theory you'll hear in evangelicalism is this idea that the word Abba uh, in Aramaic was, a, was not the standard word for father, but it was a more intimate word like dad. Actually, what you'll usually hear in evangelicalism is people say daddy. I, I think we're maybe abusing it at that point. I wouldn't recommend calling God daddy, um, but I mean... You can do it, I guess, if you want, but I don't recommend that. I don't think that's an uh, applicable uh, way to use this word, but the point is it is true that in Aramaic there were more formal ways to identify a father, and this was a more of an intimate way. Like I said, I think a good equivalent would be like dad. If, if someone walked through an door and I said, there's my father, or someone walked through the door and said, he's my dad, I think we all know that there's, the, the second one was just a little bit more intimate, a little less formal. So some people say that it's, he's trying to emphasize this intimate relationship that we have with God the Father. And I think that might be true, but the problem is, is that Abba is most likely what Jesus would have always said. So I, I don't know if Jesus was making this intimate distinction. So here's the, the understanding that I prefer. Notice, how does Paul refer to the Holy Spirit in this text? Who is the Holy Spirit? God has sent us the Spirit of his Son. I think that's why he said the word Abba, and here's the connection I'm making. Abba is what Jesus, is that was, Aramaic was the language Jesus spoke. When Jesus prayed, and this is recorded in Scripture, you'll find places in Scripture in the Gospels and Mark where Jesus actually refers to God as Abba. I think Abba is what Jesus called God. And because we have the same spirit that Jesus had, we have the same name on our lips. I think he is, Paul is trying to connect us to the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Son. The same Spirit who filled the Son of God is the same Spirit who fills us so that we all together cry out with the same voice as Christ, Father. He is emphasizing that we Worship the same God as Jesus. And we are loved by the same God as Jesus because we are united by the same Spirit. And so verse 7 is really the conclusion and the thesis, if you will. That is how our transition from slave to son happened. We were once slaves, but you are, verse 7, no longer a slave, but a son. And if you were a son, then what does that make you? An heir. Now you are truly an heir of the promises, but it only happens in the gospel. And so what I want us to conclude with is I wanted us to be reminded of this beautiful emphasis here on adoption. This beautiful emphasis that at the heart of Christianity is us returning to a father. There's this phrase, and I don't like it, it's very popular, and I don't like it. And it's this phrase, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I don't like that phrase. It's not true, and it's misleading. The Bible calls Christianity a religion, word for word. Christianity is a religion. And I think it's also misleading. It, it sort of makes these non-Christian people feel, oh, okay, I can join this thing and I don't have to be religious. And so they join it. And then we expect them to go to church. We expect them to pray. We expect them to tithe. We expect them to sing. We expect them to... This feels a lot like a religion. You guys told me it wasn't, but it feels like I'm caught up in one now. I think it's deceptive and I think it's just biblically untrue. 
Christianity is a religion. But there is a sentiment underneath the phrase that I think has been worded poorly, but the sentiment is something I adore. And that is, is that Christianity, we have to see, is far more than just a philosophy of life. It is that, but it's so much more than that. Christianity is not just a framework for viewing the world. Christianity is not just the compilation of, of, of observances of history leading to conclusion, this is what the world must be like. Christianity is not just a set of moral principles to live by. It is all of those things. But those are accidents to the heart of Christianity. Those are just the, the, the inevitable outflowing of the true blood that runs through the veins of Christian religion. And at the heart of Christianity is this wonderful truth that Christianity is absolutely a relational religion. Christianity absolutely is this mysterious, confounding relationship where the God of the universe would take a sinner and say, I love you. That we have the God of the universe who loves us and calls us not just friend, but son. That we have this beautiful relationship with God in Christ Jesus. He's not just a judge, although he is that. He's not just the master of the universe, although he is that. He is an intimate, relational, loving being who desires our relationship. He wants to be with us. He wants to interact with us. He wants to hear our prayers. He wants to love us. He wants to discipline us. The, the heart of the Christian religion is that Jesus has made it possible to be known by God. This is really what the Judaizers were missing. We don't just come here to follow traditional rules. We come here to be known intimately by God through Christ according to the working of the Spirit. And that's why I, I want to conclude with a quote from an old Puritan by the name of John Owen. Because I think that, I've actually quoted this before, but it, it deserves to be heard again. I think it's easy for us when we think of the gospel to sometimes think of the father as the angry one in the relationship. Right? God the father is grumpy and mad at your sin. And he just wants to pour out his wrath on you. But thankfully, sweet, tender, meek, and mild-hearted Jesus has stepped in and says, No, mean, angry dad, please, please, don't, don't do that. And now the father says, Okay, fine, I'll just pour out my wrath on you. Jesus is sweet and loving, and Jesus loves us, and he saves us from the wrath of God. Now, that is true. God the Father is a good judge and he does pour out his wrath on sin and Jesus, as Romans 3 says, is the propitiation of that wrath. He does save you from the wrath of God. That is true. But it doesn't follow from that that God is the mean, grumpy, angry one and Jesus is the one who just loves you so much. As a matter of fact, almost every time, I would challenge you to find the very few times that this actually happens, the vast majority of time that the Bible specifically addresses God's love for us, it's almost always referring specifically to the Father. The famous verse you see at football games, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. 
It's not Jesus so loved the world that he came to save us from God. God so loved the world that he sent his son. It's true that Jesus is the only way we access the love of God. It's true that Jesus also loves us. But the foundation of the gospel, the reason as the text said, God sent forth his son is because he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to be in his family. He wants to adopt you and give you an inheritance. By the way, what is that inheritance? Let me just put it this way. Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this inheritance and he says, the sufferings of this present world cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed. I can't tell you all the details of the inheritance to be received, but here's what I can tell you. It's better than anything you could possibly imagine. That's what's waiting for you. And it's because of God's love for you. That's why John Owen says this. The chief way by which the saints have communion with the Father is love. Free, undeserved, eternal love. This love of the Father, he pours out on the saints. And the saints are to see God as full of love to them. They are to receive him as the one who loves them and are to be full of praise and thanksgiving to God for his love. They are to show gratitude for his love by living a life which pleases him. This is the great truth of the gospel. Commonly, the Father, the first person in the Trinity, is seen only as full of wrath and anger against sin. But in the gospel, God is now revealed especially as love, as full of love to us to bring home to us this great truth is the special work of the gospel. What did Jesus accomplish by the gospel? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus came to bring you to God. He came to adopt you into the family of God. And here's what's important for us to remember. This adoption takes place by the grace of God through your faith. Not circumcision. Not bloodline. It is by faith that you are a son. And if you are a son, you are no longer a slave. And if you are no longer a slave, that you are an heir. From slave to son to heir. Heir.